Good morning, everyone. Please open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 25. That's where we're going to be today, and um, we'll have the privilege to open up God's Word right now. And what we're seeing today is Paul appealing to Caesar. And we see that God works all things together for good to those who love him. Uh, he works things together in the best possible way for those who are called by him. And at this point in time, you know, we've gone through this book verse by verse. And here Paul is a prisoner um, in Roman custody, but God's using it for his purposes. And what's happening is that, that Paul's going to get the privilege to preach the gospel to uh, prominent men and women of Judea. He's going to get this opportunity, but also he's getting protected by God from multiple assassins. And uh, we see a great example of wisely navigating life here on earth as a believer in Jesus. In fact, the main idea today is this. It's a bit counterintuitive. God can use the wise exercise of our legal rights as believers to protect his people and further the cause of Christ. So no matter where you live or where you come from, God can use the exercise of your legal rights in the cause of the gospel. So stand with me, if you will, if you can, and I'm going to read Acts 25, verses 1 through 27. This is God's word. Now three days after Festus has arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. But when they came together here, I made no delay. But on the next day, took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. 
Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked them whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. And when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. As he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seemed to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. And Lord, we want to thank you for your word. We praise you, Lord, for your presence and your goodness and your grace. Thank you, Lord, that your word is all-powerful. You are all-powerful. Your word is true, and it never changes. And we pray that by your spirit, you would use it in our lives today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So we're looking today about how God can use the wise exercise of legal rights to protect his people and to further the cause of Christ. And before we dive into that, I, I want to remind you of some things, and I'd like to remind you all the way through this, this series, really, um, all these important things that are, that are really good to remember about the book of Acts. If you take the book of Acts, you can really divide it up into three uh, sections, Acts 1 through 8 traces the gospel's growth in Jerusalem. Acts 9 through 12 traces the gospel going to Judea and Samaria. And then from Acts 13 all the way to chapter 28 to the end, it traces the gospel's progress to the remotest parts of the earth. And what you see in, in the book of Acts is a, an amazing focus on facts and people. Luke is a very um, excellent historian, and words and people matter. Words and people matter to God. Words and people matter to Luke as the Holy Spirit led him to write. As we've gone through this, this book, what we've seen is really two primary characters, Peter and Paul. Uh, from chapters 1 through 12, Peter was the primary character. Now from chapter 13 all the way to the end of the book, Paul is the primary character. And what we've seen in the last few chapters, from chapter 21 onward, is Paul the prisoner. Paul is a, a prisoner of Rome on his way to Rome. So that's the setting that we have been in. And as, as we've gone through Acts, which is volume two of a history of the church written by Luke, we have seen, and I don't think we can repeat this often enough, that Acts is the continuing story, the continuing story of Christ's work through his witnesses for his purposes. This, uh, the Gospels recorded Christ's work, uh, what he did and taught, Acts records what Jesus continued to do and teach. It's what Luke tells us at the beginning. And so all the way through this book, we have seen Jesus at work. 
He is calling his witnesses, indwelling his church, healing people, inspiring the preaching of the gospel, purifying his church, stretching his people, scattering his flock so that more people hear the gospel. And he is speaking to many hearts. He's sending his witnesses out. He's choosing his instruments of grace. And what we see is that people are repenting of their sins. They're coming to faith in Christ. They're responding to God. They're going to all nations. They're serving God's purposes. And they're navigating treacherous times. And you see God opening hearts to the gospel over and over and over again, just like he does today. You see his people building bridges for the gospel. You see God encouraging his servants and providing for his people and loving his church and orchestrating his plan, comforting his people, rescuing his people. How many times have we seen Paul's life saved by God? And then last week, we were in chapter 24, and we see people refusing to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. And, and sadly, they're rejecting Christ. And, and here is Paul, who was on trial uh, be, before a faithless, wicked ruler, Felix. Uh, and Felix refuses to repent and believe the gospel, even though he had the opportunity to hear the gospel many, many times. Chapter 24 tells us that, that, um, that Felix called for Paul many times. Now, his, his motive was twisted. His motive was that he wanted to get money from Paul. But he had heard the gospel over and over and over again, hardened his heart, condemned himself. And so now, we see in Acts chapter 25, you know, we're, we're going to see not only what, what God does through Paul in this instance, as Paul really claims his legal right as a citizen of Rome, but what God might do through you as well, you and I as well. Paul is appealing to Caesar. Now, when we left off last time in chapter 24, Paul was basically left in jail for two years, two whole years. Um, kind of like, it reminds me kind of like of, of Joseph in Genesis, Genesis chapter 41, where he is falsely accused, he is jailed, he is left there for two whole years until God leads him out to stand before Pharaoh and to interpret his dreams, and God uses that to save many lives. God is using Paul here for gospel purposes. What has happened since, since Felix leaves, because Felix um, gets fired, basically, and a guy named Portius Festus takes his place. So if you think Felix is a weird name. If you think Felix was a weird cat, you would just, you would just go, wow, Portius Festus? What a name. And, and, but, but Portius Festus is the new governor because Felix gets fired for ruthlessly botching a riot in Caesarea. Kills a lot of people, sheds a lot of blood. The Jews tell on him, tell the emperor, and he fires Felix. And so... Festus is now in charge, and he's new, he's a rookie, and so verse 1 tells us that he shows up in the province, and he goes to Jerusalem, so he's there, he, he's the new governor, he's got to meet all the important people that he is now going to oversee, and he arrives, and he takes this road trip to Jerusalem to meet the Sanhedrin, to meet the leading Jews, and as soon as he gets there, look what happens, verse 2, the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews lay out their case against Paul. Two years later, still fostering this hatred and this desire to kill Paul. 
The Bible tells us what a man, by what a man is overcome, by that he is enslaved. And the Jewish leaders were enslaved by their hatred of Paul. They're fixated on wanting to kill Paul. And so they ask a favor. Verse 3 tells us, they ask a favor against Paul, because they're hating Paul, they want to kill Paul, and they say, why don't you call Paul to Jerusalem? Just, you know, tell him he needs to go to Jerusalem. Send him to Jerusalem, because while he's on the way, we're going to kill him. So here's another plan to assassinate him, ambush him, uh, kill him on the way. I don't know if you remember the, the 40-some people that were planned to do this, the feisty 40, let's call them. The feisty 40s, earlier plot to assassinate Paul had been foiled, and so now they're thinking we can get, come up with a better opportunity mm, on the road from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And they're leaving no stone unturned, lo- losing no time, exploiting Festus's favor, and they're thinking to themselves, this guy's inexperienced, he's a rookie, he'll say yes. And he listens to them and hears the request, but looks like he has somewhat of a backbone. He doesn't immediately agree. Now, one thing you need to know, and, and look, uh, we're having an inauguration coming up here in, in, in America. You know, when, when politicians change hands, they always say, you know, the, the guy before me messed things up, and now I've got to inherit his problems. This is exactly what Festus had going on. He inherited all of Felix's you know, bad political press, all the problems that his predecessor had left, he had to inherit them. Now, Felix, if you remember, was cruel. And he inflicted a lot of punishment upon Jews. He crucified a lot of people. And so the Jews have a hatred of Rome because of Felix. And this is what Festus is inheriting. And so he's thinking to himself, I need them to like me a bit here. I'm going to throw them a bone, basically. Festus tells them, well, Paul's in Caesarea, and I'm going there soon. Verse 4. And and so he's no procrastinator like Felix. And he says in verse 5, why don't you go with me? Why don't you go? We'll have a nice trial there. If Paul has done anything wrong, you accuse him there. It'll be perfect. And so I love Luke's details. Verse 6. He stays 8 or 10 days. Might have been 9, but he stays a period of time, goes down to Caesarea, and they go with him to accuse Paul. And so he sits on the tribunal, which is where he's deciding all the cases as judge. He sits there, whatever he says goes. And so he orders Paul to be brought in. Paul arrives, verse 7, and they all surround him. Can you imagine? They like circle him, and they start pointing their fingers at him and accusing him of all these serious crimes, but they can't prove a thing. Nothing. There, two years had passed. No evidence, no case, no witnesses. And so Paul argues his defense in verse 8. He says, I've done nothing wrong. Nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or the temple or Caesar. Just like we saw those three accusations last week. He said, no, I am clearly not guilty of any of those three charges against me. I didn't break man's law. I didn't break the Jews' law. I didn't break God's law. But what happens is the case is reopened. Because Felix had neglected his duty. Remember, he called time out and said, well, let's leave him in prison. Now, Festus, just like Felix, has authority over the Jews. He could appoint high priests. He had authority over the temple. And he was acting as the ambassador of Caesar. And so Festus wants to do the Jews a favor. And he says in verse 9, hey, Paul. And he's got to be winking at the Jews as he's doing it. 
why not go to Jerusalem and stand trial for me? He knows they're going to try to kill him on the way. There won't be any trial. But Festus is at a loss. He doesn't even realize what's going on. He doesn't understand Paul's faith. He's the new governor. Uh, the Sanhedrin was the national supreme court of the Jews. He's in charge over them, and he wants them to like him. So he's thinking, let's just send Paul back, which would mean certain death for Paul, by the way. So this is a critical moment. This is a very critical moment. Like, what's going to happen next, right? This is, a, this, is a, this is a pause, a pregnant pause here. And, and verse 10 Paul wisely says, bad idea. <laughs> Not a good idea here. Um, he knows his life is going to be in jeopardy all over again. Festus is a rookie. Paul figures out, though, I know a way out of this puzzle. And so he says to him, he says, look, I'm before tri Caesar's tribunal. Uh, this is where I ought to be tried. I've done, I've done nothing wrong. You know it. And in verse 11, he makes a, an interesting admission that I think Christians need to be well aware of. He says, if I'm guilty, kill me. If I'm guilty, kill me. He knows he's not. And then he says, I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. Now, we tossed the, the name Caesar around. It was a title for the emperor. The Caesar at this time was Nero. He has just appealed to Nero. Now, some of you are thinking, didn't he use Christians as Malibu lights in his garden? Didn't he brutally, you know, um, terrorized Christians? He just appealed to Nero? Yes. Now, what, we, what a lot of people don't know, though, is that what happened in the first five years of Nero's reign was kind of known as a golden age in that time. He wasn't as bad as he got in A.D. 64. So what happened from 59 to 64 wasn't that bad. Now, again, for an evil ru ruler, okay? So it's a scale, all right? And, and what Luke is really making clear to us here is that Christians are, are innocent, lie-abiding people. That's what Christians should be, the best citizens of their earthly kingdom. Whatever kingdom you live in, you should be the best. If you're, if you're a professing Christian, you should be one of the best citizens around. And, and here's what was going on in that time. Unbelieving Jews were often saying about Christians, they're political revolutionaries. Interesting, who revolted against Rome? Not the Christians, the Jews. They're saying to, to Rome all the time, these Christians are political revolutionaries. Totally untrue. Now, when Rome finally did persecute Christians, they did not kill them for being political revolutionaries. They killed them because they refused to worship the emperor as God. They refused to give up their faith. That's why they were killed. Verse 12 tells us, though, that Festus calls a timeout. He goes, you know what, i got to figure something out with my team. So he calls a timeout to talk with his council, and then he comes back in. And he says this, to Caesar you've appealed, to Caesar you're going to go. That's wonderful. You're doing it. Let's go. Paul had invoked his legal right as a citizen of Rome. They honor his request. Festus, he's off the hook. He escaped, escapes a difficult situation. I'm sure he's glad to have Paul's case uh, you know, transferred to Rome except for this one tiny detail. No case. <laughs> There's nothing to it. There's no real charges. And so Festus, I'm sure, is kind of wringing his hands going, what am I going to do if I send him to Rome without any charges? It might be my neck on the line. And so verse 13 tells us that after a while, 
Okay, uh, a bunch of days pass, and two important visitors arrive. And they arrive to greet Festus. Festus is the new guy, and, and so the king, Agrippa and Bernice, arrive. Now, you might think, oh, Agrippa and Bernice, that must be the king and the queen. No, as we shall see in a moment. Now, uh, King Agrippa, this man was the son of Herod Agrippa I, the one who killed James, arrested Peter, and met the untimely death for not giving God glory, was eaten by worms, and died. Chapter 12. At the time of his father's death, he was 17 years old. He's the older brother of Drusilla, who was married to Felix. You see, there's the fa little family tree going on here, okay? His great uncle, Herod Antipas, executed John the Baptist. That was him. Tried to kill Jesus. Later tried Jesus. He comes from a bad family here, okay? His great-grandfather was Herod the Great, who ruled at the time of Jesus' birth. He's the one who murdered all the children, all the boys in Bethlehem uh, area in his attempt to kill Jesus. So Herod comes from a long line of wicked men. And Herod the Grip of the Second here was known as the last of the Herods because he died in 100 AD with no children. Now the part you might not know about Agrippa and Bernice is they were brother and sister. And there were a lot of weird stories going about them. Uh, their relationship was scandalous and questionable. They stay a while, verse 14, and Festus tells the king all about Paul. They're hanging out, and he says, by the way, there's this guy named Paul. He's left a prisoner by Felix. Uh, now, Agrippa has this reputation of being a, a, uh, a uh, authority on the Jews, and so Festus decides he's the person who can help me frame up Paul with some trumped-up charges. We can do this. So he's kind of thinking, I'm glad he's here. Verse 15 he starts going through all the way, all the way to verse 20. He's like, well, here's what happened. They, they came and accused him, but there's really nothing to it. And really, they just have an issue about this guy named Jesus who, who died. But Paul says he's alive. And he's basically saying, like, how do I investigate this? And I offered to have him go to Jerusalem, but he didn't. And now he wants to he appeal to Caesar. I'm just waiting to send him. And so what happens is Agrippa says to Festus, verse 22, I want to hear this guy. He's curious. So now Paul's going to become amusement for the king. And so Festus says, we'll set up a time tomorrow. Now as they go their way, what, what you don't see here is that really what happened is that Festus is now going to turn Paul's hearing into a party to honor Agrippa. So he's making plans to have this great big party for Agrippa. So the next day, and by the way, verse 23 is one of the craziest scenes in all the Bible. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice come with great pomp. Okay, we don't use that word a lot, right? Pomp. When was the last time you used that word? I've used it a lot today. Um, <laughs> the, it's the Greek word fantasia. It's only used once in the New Testament. And here's what it means. A grand, showy pageant. Big party. And so they enter in, and all the military tribunes, all the prominent people, and, and so there's this party, and Agrippa would have been decked out in his purple robe, his golden crown, his rings, probably holding a scepter. 
Bernice is not officially the queen, but she would have been decked out in all her regalia. Everyone would have their finest clothes and uniforms on, and the contrast could not be more evident. Because walking in before them, pretty much as their amusement, is the Apostle Paul. And we think of him as, wow, the Apostle Paul. They were thinking of him as the scum of the earth. He's a prisoner. He doesn't mean anything to them. They don't care about his life. And so they come in. Festus gives the command because he's in charge. And he says, bring Paul in. Verse 24, he addresses all the important people. King Agrippa and all who are with us. This guy is a troublemaker. But verse 25, a very interesting admission. He, didn't do any, he hasn't done anything deserving death. He appealed to the emperor, so I'm sending him. But verse 26, I don't have anything bad to write about him to Nero. And he calls Nero my lord. He, Greek word kurios, it's, it's, the, it's the word for God. And, and they called the, the Roman emperor Nero, Lord, because they believed he was God, and they worshiped him as God. And so he says to Agrippa, look, I need you to help me. Let's examine him. Let's find something against him. Let's find some dirt on Paul. He says in verse 27, and by the way, I just want you to know, I I wrote a smiley face in my Bible after verse 27, because it's kind of (laughs) hilarious. It's not smart to send a prisoner charged with nothing. Really? I'm going to get in big trouble, he's basically saying, if I send a prisoner to Nero guilty of nothing. And so, this is what happens in this chapter. This is where we're going to stop right now. We're going to stop right here. Um, we'll, we'll get into chapter 26 at another time. But, but here's what's happening here. Paul is appealing to Caesar. He's walking by faith. Uh, later on, next chapter, he's going to strongly identify as a follower of Jesus. He's going to clearly give the gospel to Agrippa and anyone else in his presence. But there's some important lessons for us to learn from this passage. Uh, We see a great example of wisely navigating life as a believer. And I want to make three observations, just three observations. The first is this, that extreme situations sometimes call for drastic measures. They don't always call for drastic measures. But sometimes extreme situations call for drastic measures. And Paul wisely using his legal rights as a citizen of Rome is a drastic measure here. And he's using it in the cause of Christ. So God uses this to protect Paul's life and to further the gospel, his exercise of his legal rights. He is before Festus and Paul is emphasizing, I am innocent of all these charges and if I am guilty, kill me. Christians should take note. He's willing to be judged by the governor. He's willing to die if he's guilty. He is respecting God-ordained authority. He is petitioning to be transferred to their supreme court, basically, in Rome, but but it's a court of one. Nero will decide. that's, That's what's on the docket. That's what's on the plan at this point. I think Christians need to be prepared for anything. Paul flexes with the situation. He doesn't have a cookie-cutter answer. He's tailoring his, respo- tailoring his response to the, the situation at hand. And I guess we should just get hyper-personal here, if I may. It would be very easy for us to say, well, that's all good and well for Paul. That's the Apostle Paul. 
I'm not going to go see Nero, Caesar. I don't have that. I'm just talking to neighbors and coworkers and friends and family members. I mean, give me a break. In fact, we're going to say, well, you know, in fact, the people that I'm around, they might not react favorably to the gospel. And I think somehow Christians have gotten this idea, this notion that we cannot exercise our civic rights in the, in the proclamation and service of the gospel. That we, that we somehow think that Christians need to be doormats and get a, go along with everything that's pushed upon us. These are wrong thoughts. We just give ourselves all these ideas. Um, who says that Christians should never uh, you know, push back when they're oppressed? Who says that Christians should always yield to those who oppress them? God didn't say that. Neither does Paul show that. So we feed ourselves lines. Well, I, you know, I want to be a good wit, winsome witness here, but I can't rock the boat. Well, you know, sometimes the boat needs to be rocked. Well, I can't ruin my testimony. If I speak up, I might do that. I need to fit in. I don't want to say anything that's not politically correct uh, for fear of offending someone. Well, the gospel is offensive. Who says that the gospel has to be like whitewashed into this non-offensive you know, drivel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is offensive. And we've got to be bold and, and humble at the same time. We've got to have a credible life that doesn't uh, pull the rug out from under our witness. Peter talked clearly about it. 1 Peter 3. You might want to look there. 1 Peter 3. Peter says, who is there to harm you? Verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Do not be troubled. In your hearts, honor Christ. The Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Do it with gentleness and respect. Have a good conscience. He goes on and says, if you're slandered, those who revive your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame it's better to suffer for doing good if God should will it than for doing evil. If you do evil, you deserve the punishment. Now, I realize you might be terrified to open your mouth. I get it. I am too, many times. But there is something that happens when the Spirit of God gives you thoughts and then words to further the gospel. Now, I'm praying that the Spirit of God would grab a hold of our hearts, that we would be not just bold, but humble witnesses for Christ. The Spirit of God would come mightily upon us so that we would fulfill our calling. Remember what Jesus said way back at the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts 1.8? The Holy Spirit's gonna come upon you. You're gonna receive power. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, the remotest parts of the earth. Now we have to be wise as serpents, innocent as doves, like William Wilberforce finding a legal loophole to end the British slave trade. Like Paul appealing to Caesar. But you know what Paul gives us? He gives us this wonderful gift right here in this passage. He gives us an illustration of what he says in Romans 13. He gives us an illustration of the believer's proper relation to the government and to authorities. He willingly submitted to an ungodly government and their leader Nero. Look at Romans 13. And at this point in the book of Acts, Paul had already written Romans. This already stood. It was already out there. 
Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive, re- receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God. It assumes good rulers, it denounces bad and evil rulers. It basically says, you know what? Be in subjection. And Paul was. The easy way out for Paul would have been, let's get off free because I'm innocent, not go to Nero. That was God's way for him. That was not the easy way for him. He wasn't taking the escape route. Paul lived to preach another day because of it. Sometimes extreme situations call for drastic measures. Second observation, truth. We are in the world but not of it as believers in Christ. We are in the world but not of it. So we have to navigate wisely in the world but not of it. I think of times I've navigated um, cars in foreign countries. I think about being in, in driving the streets of India, just being a passenger in a taxi, careening down the road with no dotted yellow line in the middle of the road, and people and cows uh, being, trying to be missed, and especially missed the cows. The same was true in Indonesia. Uh, it, it's kind of crazy, and they all drive on the wrong side of the road. And I was thinking about being in South Africa, and we were, I, we were there a couple weeks, and, and we are about to go to the airport, go home. They hadn't given me the wheel of any car for like two weeks. They didn't trust me. And then all of a sudden, the, the keys get thrown to me. Hey, you need to drive. Someone got sick. And I'm like, all right, finally. But my mind had to immediately start clicking and thinking and going, other side of the road, different way of turning, different street signs. I had an awesome time doing it, but it was you had to just think on the fly. And that's how Christians need to be. you got to be able to think on the fly. You are in the world but not of it, so you can't bring a cookie-cutter you know, answer to a problem that isn't in front of you yet. You need to resolve of how you're going to be, but you can't resolve exactly how you're going to respond in the exact way. And I think somehow we have gotten the idea as professing believers that the workplace, that the marketplace, that public education and the public sector in general is a religion-free zone. People tell you that, and it's not true. It is a lie. You are protected by the law to be who you are wherever you go. Oh, and there might be consequences. Sure, there are consequences to being a believer in Jesus. And by the way, if you carry your faith around like a club, you're going to hurt people and get attacked. If you carry your faith like a first aid kit, you can help people. Christ Jesus will give you courage and encouragement uh, by the power of his spirit. He will assist you in using the intelligence God has given you, the wisdom he has given you, the abilities he has given you, the spiritual gifts he has given you to proclaim the gospel in many situations. We've got to ask ourselves questions like, where does my main focus in life come from? 
Are my ideas an imitation of the world or an imitation of Christ? Are they from the world or from the word of God? Are, are my driving ambitions or my daily attitudes shaped more by the spirit of the age than the spirit of, or the spirit of God? I'm asking myself these questions. You need to ask yourself these questions. Let's move on to one last observation. Not just, hey, we're in the world but not of it, and not just that sometimes extreme situations call for drastic measures. But this last part, it really has to do with the, the whole idea of, of um, Festus and, and Bernice coming in on all their pomp and circumstance and, and that appearances can be misleading. Appearances can mess with your mind. And just wondering, what if Paul had been wearing a Fitbit what would his pulse have been when he was in front of Bernice and Festus and Felix and Agrippa and all these people? I mean, I wonder how it was going, how it was going internally for Paul. But here's the thing about Paul. So yeah, appearances can be deceiving, but he wasn't deceived. He wasn't deceived by the appearances. He wasn't put off by the, the golden crown and the, the jewels and the robes and thinking, wow, yeah, I'm less than. I should just go along with whatever you guys say. History can attest to the fact that these VIPs of their day crossed paths with Paul for a short window of opportunity to hear the gospel and that there was a crowd of noble, powerful, pompous fools who thought they were higher than God. And they were looking down at this handcuffed Jew who stood before them to plead his case. Just a case. It was just a case. We go, whoa, it's a big case. It was just a case. There were other cases going on. But in the world's eyes, they were Paul's superiors and they held his life in their hands. Little did they know that Jesus held Paul's life in his hands. And, and Paul just like any other professing believer, was indestructible until, until the moment that God had ordained to call him home or Jesus came back, whichever comes first. That's true about your life too. Sin had grossly deformed the soul of these leaders that blinded them to truth. And sure, I bet you some of them could have said, Paul, who are you to tell us anything? Because you have done the same things we have. Paul had had his, his heart opened to the gospel. He had received the grace of God in Christ in mercy. He said, I, I, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And Paul was no fool. He was seen as a fool for Christ, but he was no fool. The Bible tells us the fool says in his heart there is no God. The fool says Jesus is dead. Those caught in sin are held captive by Satan and are slaves of sin. Jesus said everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. If you present yourself, Paul said, if you present yourself uh, to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one to whom you obey, whether sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. Psalm 2 tells us that God laughs at kings but I wonder if Paul was thinking about Psalm 49 when he was going through this situation. Go, go there with me as we close. Go there with me. Go to Psalm 49. See, the contrast, as you're turning there, the contrast is this. 
The contrast is whether you see Jesus dead or alive. It's verse 19. The contrast is verse 19. Well, there was this Jesus who was dead, but Paul says he's alive. The gospel is really clear. Christ died for our sins on the cross. He, He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. If you believe in him, you'll live. If you reject him, you'll die forever apart from God. It it can't be clearer than that. And you've got Felix and Festus and Agrippa, the high rollers of their day, kind of like the rich man and Lazarus. They're playing political hot potato with Paul. No one wants to touch Paul, not because they valued his life, but because they valued theirs more. But Paul valued people's souls. He he said he would gladly spend and be spent for people's souls. Interestingly, at one point in the scriptures, it says those from Caesar's household greet you. There are people in Caesar's household that were believers in Christ, in Nero's palace. Look at Psalm 49. Verse 7. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of his life is costly, can never suffice. He cannot live on forever and never see the pit. So you can't save somebody else. He sees that even the, we, the wise die and the foolish and the stupid alike perish and leave their wealth to others, like Festus, Felix, Agrippa. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names. Caesarea, anyone? Verse 12, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like beasts that perish. Verse 15, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. When he, when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will go down after him. But though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, literally congratulates himself. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generations of his father, will never again see light. This is the, the lot of the unbeliever. And then verse 20 again, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. Paul knew that. We need to know that. And we need to know that God can use the wise exercise of of civic legal rights to protect his people and further the cause of Christ. There are extreme circumstances that call sometimes for drastic measures. And if you're going to exercise your legal rights, make sure you're doing it right. Make sure you are actually obeying the law. We are in the world, but not of it. We've got to navigate wisely. Make sure that you're innocent. Don't suffer as an evildoer. And appearances can be misleading. Operate humbly. Paul, did you notice, did not need to demand better treatment. He always had Christ's mission in mind. And appealing to Caesar was not the easy way. If he was thinking it of himself, and Agrippa says later, this guy could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. He was not looking for the easy way. He was looking for, for the Lord's way in this. That's what we need to do too. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. And we thank you for the cross. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his shed blood in our place. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who keeps saying, what is this thing about Jesus? Lord, I pray that they would believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved, that they would confess their sins, they would turn from their sins and come to Christ. And for all the rest who who know him, I pray, Lord, that we would always keep your mission in mind. We pray in Christ's name, amen.